honest questions with honest answers. This is Unfiltered, brought to you by the Emergency Medical Minute. This is Nick Sippis recording from the studio at Swedish Medical Center in Englewood, Colorado. We are privileged to have Dr. Anton Hellman of the podcast Emergency Medicine Cases. Dr. Hellman is an emergency physician at North York General in Toronto. He's an assistant professor at the University of Toronto, and he is the founder, host, and chief editor of Emergency Medicine Cases. And from a personal perspective, I've been a big fan of Emergency Medicine Cases for years, uh, going back to just the start of my medical school. So it's a real privilege to have you on, Anton. Thank Thank you for making the time. Thank you, Nick. It's uh, a total pleasure coming on to other people's podcasts. It's nice to flip the chairs, so to speak, every now and then. <laughs> well, the privilege is mine. I um, I want to start off with a little bit of an origin story for you personally. What was life like growing up for you? And, and, and as best as you can remember, what do you think led you down the path of a career in medicine? Well, I was pretty fortunate to have a supportive, tight family and a father who was a family doctor who also did emergency medicine. He did everything though. He did obstetrics and nursing homework and surgical assisting. It was, it was a little bit different in those days. Um, and he was for sure a role model. But when it came to deciding on a career, it was kind of a tie between music engineering actually and medicine because I grew up the youngest of three brothers and one of my oldest brothers was a musician and I'd been playing piano since I was about five years old Um, and I was in high school playing in jam bands and practicing keyboards like a fiend and kind of my mother had to beg me to stop practicing all the time kind of music was everything at the time but a bit later uh, I actually worked at a recording studio um, as a assistant recording engineer briefly. So when it came to figuring out what I wanted to do with the rest of my life, I actually applied to both music recording engineering school and medical school at the same time. Um, <laughs> I miraculously somehow got into both, but the lucky choice I made was medicine because it turns out that music recording engineering is a really tough gig that's kind of gotten tougher and tougher ever since <laughs> I applied. Um, so yes, I'm very happy to have made that decision. So that's kind of how it all happened. And that's actually kind of how I ended up getting into podcasting. Cause that in a way married those two passions of mine, music, music recording and, uh, and medicine. It absolutely does. That, that makes sense. The most important follow-up question I have to that is, are there, you know, photo proofs of you in a garage band from back in the day? Are they publicly available and or obtainable? <laughs> I have been in a few bands over the years, but uh, I do try and keep my my music life separate from my medical life because um, it's actually it's it's interesting. It's a totally different hat and a totally different way of thinking. It's using a totally different part of your brain. It's actually quite opposite in some ways because in in the kind of jam bands that I play in, there's a lot of improvisation, um, and a lot of it is just taking chances. And it's kind of the opposite in of, in medicine, actually, where you're it's a risk assessment. Everything you're doing is a risk assessment. And then, and then you're applying your knowledge and your skills to balance the risk. Um, whereas in a jam band, you're just going for it. And if you totally screw up, everyone laughs, you fall flat on your face and you just keep on going. And then every now and then you just, you know, play some incredible solo or something. And that's, <laughs> and then that's when it's a lot of fun. So, you know, in some ways it is similar. There's the sort of deliberate practice part of it, but, uh, it's nice to be able to do something creative with the podcast and with music because I find in medicine, just clinical medicine by itself, you're kind of missing a little bit of that creative element. And I feel like you kind of need to do something creative in life to really get the most out of it. Absolutely. Do you find that there's a complementary, you know, 
piece to that, to the to those two mindsets? Do you find that one mindset helps you in the other in terms of giving you a pivot or a different perspective on, on medicine or vice versa? Yeah, well, I think where the music part and the medicine part meet is those very rare times where you can actually get flow. Um, you know, you have your team in a resuscitation and you have the musicians that you're playing with in a band. And most of the time, things are just going along and you play your music and it's fine and you do a resuscitation and it goes okay. Every now and then, you have a resuscitation where the team is just working beautifully and you get into that flow state. Um, and same with the music. Every now and then, the band gets into this flow state. And th those moments are you know, what I live for basically. Absolutely. Um, and so, and so it happens kind of in both medicine and in music. I love that. I love that analogy that we're going to try to achieve a flow state in this interview. And if we don't, it's a, re <laughs> it's a reflection of the host, not the guest. I will, I will You're doing great, that. man. <laughs> so what was it about emergency medicine that specifically caught your attention? Well, on a broader perspective, medicine that really makes a difference in people's lives, like meaningful, meaningful medicine to me, is either preventative medicine, like what the exceptional family medicine doc will do. and Your, your dad? A, yeah. Yeah. As an example. And, and acute medicine. So emergency medicine, I, you know, in, intensive care, trauma, emergency surgery, that kind of thing. Um, you know, not to downplay everything in between. I think all those other specialties have their roles. But to me, I think if you combine really good preventative medicine, public health with really good acute medicine, you've covered almost everything that's really important. I think when people think back on their lives and their health, those are the things that really, I think, dictate the outcomes the most. Um, and so I actually started doing family practice and emergency medicine at the same time. Um, those were the days where you could do both. I mean, now it's much more difficult to do that. Mm. And I just found it very difficult balancing both of them. And so I ended up just choosing emergency medicine. Now, I just love the diagnostics and the quick pace. And really, I think what it comes down to is just a matter of kind of digging the vibe of emergency doctors. You know, just my personality seemed to fit theirs the best of all the specialties. So that's what I ended up in. That's wonderful. Was there a particular patient or a particular mentor or role model that you can point to uh, as you decided to go into initially family EM and then EM? Was there a, a sentinel moment? Well, that's interesting. I mean, one of the regrets I have is that I never really had an influential mentor early in my career. It was only about, I don't know, about seven years in that my first mentor really helped me to kind of change the trajectory of emergency medicine for me. Um, and that was Walter Himmel, who's been a guest many times on EM Cases. He was the first doc I met who not only had this kind of incredible wealth of knowledge, almost inhuman, but at the same time was one of the most kind of ethically solid docs I had ever met. And that really kind of appealed to me. Um, but that doesn't really answer your question. So you asked about a, a story of how I had a mentor that developed my career. Well, Back in about 2008, 2009, when I first thought up of the EM Cases podcast, I asked a bunch of my colleagues what they thought of the idea. Just about all of them said I was totally nuts and probably it was a total waste of time or something to that effect. And I was about to actually give up the whole project until one day I was at work. And I remember it like as clear as day. I was on shift 
I was taking a break and Walter and I were just kind of shooting the shit. And I told him about this crazy idea of starting an emergency medicine podcast. And he kind of sat there and he listened carefully as he usually does and kind of looked me straight in the eye. And he said with the utmost sincerity that my idea had huge potential. And at the time, there were actually only one or two EM podcasts out there. And he actually anticipated that docs were really thirsty for more. You know, he said people really do want to hear from a, a regular community EM doc that they can relate to, um, you know, instead of someone from the ivory tower academic hospital sort of thing. So instead of giving up, it was actually Walter who inspired me to go for it, uh, to make the medical education podcast. And that took me on a path of learning basically as much as I possibly could about emergency medicine, about medical education, and about podcasting. And that's really when my career really pivoted, really shifted. Uh, because before that, I was kind of just your emergency doctor who just showed up to shift and, you know, <laughs> put in his time. Unlikely, but it makes for a good story. Unlikely, but I we'll, we'll take it at face value. All right. <laughs> so what kind of, you know, when you look back and you think about things that Walter taught you, or more specifically, the ways in which he taught you, how do you try and transfer that onto your students? You're the education innovation lead at the Schwartz-Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute. And how do you try and take those lessons that you learned from him and others and uh, translate them into your, your students' experience? Well, I mean, I, I try to apply as much of the current kind of best medical education theories to how I teach. Um, and I've learned so much. Walter's one of the mentors that I've had, and as an educator as well. Um, the other mentors, uh, you know, we actually did a podcast a few years ago um, about teaching emergency medicine in particular uh, with Alma Matu and Rick Pensner, I think it was. And that was actually kind of another sentinel moment where researching how to teach and really absorbing what those guys taught me. Um, and I think just kind of along the way, all the reading I've done about medical education theory, um, and then trying to put that into practice, that's kind of what has shaped my way uh, of teaching. Um, I still have a long way to go there, though. It's really still a huge challenge in a really busy emergency department um, to be able to zero in on exactly what's important to teach and what students and, and residents can can really take home. But I think those little tips and tricks that that Amol and Rick and Walter have taught me over the years, those have those have done me pretty well, I think. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I you've published on, you know, the knowledge retention in with the use of podcasts, blogs, and those types of media uh, as it comes to your your students. If you could give us a few couple sentinel or particularly relevant tips for our listeners as they readily engage with these types of media? Do you have anything that you think are particularly important for them to focus on as they try and learn from emergency medicine cases and EMM and others? Well, I kind of set up emergency medicine cases, um, this thing called the emergency medicine cases learning system. And that takes into account uh, what I think is the best learning theory, which is the whole idea of spaced repetition and multimodal learning. So we think, and this is again kind of hard to prove, but that retention or effective learning is best when we engage the deliberate learner who's using multiple different media or modes of learning over time. So they might listen to a podcast, then a few days later read the show notes, then watch a video, then maybe chat on shift with a colleague, and then maybe do a quiz on the topic. 
So that's how we set up the emergency medicine cases learning system that you can do all of those things. You can watch a video, you can read the show notes, you can get emails that remind you of, of the pearls that we talked about in the, um, in the podcast. Then you can test yourself. So test enhanced learning is really important. So you can test yourself with our, our quiz vault. Um, so in terms of people trying to get the most out of foam and get the most out of EM cases in particular, I'd recommend just understanding first what space repetition and multimodal learning is all about, and then just diving in and trying to do that interleaving of different media and reading and watching videos and listening to podcasts and test enhanced learning and trying to do all of that for all the main topics in emergency medicine over your the time of your residency and also as CME when you've graduated. That's wonderful. Thank you for that. And, and thank you for all the work that you've done on that. You truly are a thought leader in this field. And, and um, you know, I think we all are, are the beneficiaries of that. Could you ever have imagined that EM cases has become what it has become today in terms of spread and and depth of of information. Was this was this all part of the master plan? No freaking way. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I really just started it out as a way, kind of, for me to learn and to share stuff with the community and to get to know really smart, amazing people that I have on the show, um, and just to try and get the community closer together and do something cool with the skills that I have with podcasting and, and music recording, as I was saying before, um, it, it's actually a little bit daunting. I, I kind of feel in a way like I have too much responsibility. You know, just last month, there were 320,000 downloads of EM Cases podcast just in March 2020, um, which is insane. Like, I, I really don't feel like I have, you know, the right even to have that much say in what people are learning in emergency medicine. Thankfully, there's a lot of other really good foam resources out there. So, you know, I do encourage people to not take anything at face value, to be very skeptical and to really try and get their learning from multiple, you know, I was talking about multimodal learning, but multiple podcasts, multiple different foam resources out there. There's some really, really smart people out there, way smarter than me, who are doing amazing work. So, yeah. I mean, it's, it is a bit daunting. I am also lucky to have uh, a really good advisory board and a really good team who will let me know if I'm screwing anything up. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, uh, you mentioned, uh, a high degree of responsibility and, and, and that is, you know, I, I can imagine that I can only imagine that it is that for you, but it's one that's well-deserved and, and, and well-earned over the course of over a decade now of providing kind of cutting edge, um, uh, foam and, and and emergency medicine education. So we're 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 fortunate to have you in that role. Um, let's shift gears a little bit to uh, recent events. Um, it's been a you know a quiet last four to six weeks. I haven't. Is there anything new in emergency medicine that you can? <laughs> can you walk me through a typical day for you at your shop in the in the in the world of COVID? In the world of COVID, actually, I I just got off shift um, about an hour ago. So it's funny, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we were kind of bracing for, for the storm to hit, for the tsunami of COVID patients to hit. We were expecting it to be really, really bad. Um, and it seems like here in Ontario and Toronto in particular, we have flattened the curve. So our volumes still are only about two thirds of what they usually are. 
the acuity has gone up because I think there's a lot of people who are really scared to go to the emergency department. Um, I think the anxiety that we've we had a few weeks ago, kind of waiting for the tsunami, I think it has lessened considerably because I think we all are much more comfortable with the with the likelihood that we're not going to have that tsunami and we've had time over the last few weeks for our admin people and for actually most of the eMERGE docs have contributed immensely at our hospital to set up protocols to do simulations uh, to design to develop order sets um, there's been a lot of people who have done a ton of work and the community has been very supportive as well. So I think we're actually doing okay. There's still a little bit of anxiety in the air. And I think people are starting to get somewhat exhausted, just having those eight or 10 hour shifts with PPE, the whole shift really is exhausting. Um, but I have hope that we're going to get through it. And I'm lucky that I'm at a hospital where the admin and, and all the folks working from, from the cleaners to the desk clerks to the nurses, everyone's really got a great attitude and is really chipped in to help the cause. It makes all the difference in the world, as I'm sure you would agree. Yeah, totally. So have you seen any issues? I, a lot of your comments mirror the trends that we're seeing here, too. You know, overall decrease in volume, overall increase in acuity. Um, have you seen any issues with delayed care? I've been on shift this week a lot, and and I would say every shift I can think of one or two clinical scenarios, whether it's a perforated appy or uh, a bad MI or perhaps a, a stroke outside the thrombolytic window, where folks have, and they very clearly communicate to me that they delayed their care out of concern for exposure in the emergency department or using resources that are kind of publicly oftentimes portrayed as scarce or or limited. Have you seen any of that with your patients? Yeah, absolutely. Me too. It's we're seeing pretty much exactly the same thing. You know, whether it's someone showing up a week after they have a fracture that requires surgery, where normally they would have shown up, you know, within a couple of hours of the injury, or yeah, perfed appy, um, people showing up a day or two after their stroke symptoms started. Um, yeah, we're seeing all of that as well. Uh, in our, it, it's really changed our practice, especially at our place, quite a bit, because our community is quite affluent, and they tend to show up the second they're sick. So we have huge volumes of sort of anxious people who show up the minute they get sick. We also have a healthcare system in Canada that encourages people to come to the hospital quickly, and you know they're not paying out of pocket, so they don't lose anything from going to the hospital. Uh, it's interesting from our perspective, I've thought about how the way we're practicing now perhaps is more like I imagine at least it might be in some parts of the U.S. where it's harder for people to get to hospital or they can't afford uh, the bills, and so they might delay going to the hospital um, until they get really sick, so sick that they have to go to the hospital. So I do wonder the way we're practicing now whether I'm learning a little bit about how it might be to practice in some parts of the U.S. I think there is some truth to that. I, I think it, it it clearly depends on your particular location and your patient mix. I mean, I think we have seen a, a, a drop off of the worried well, so to speak. Um, 
and I, in my particular institution, I, there there aren't a ton of folks who who wait that long. But I know that is a common experience, uh, and particularly a lot of the busy urban academic centers down here south of the border. I think to your point, I actually think I wonder how much of this will reflect future trends um, in terms of emergency resource utilization. You know, is this does this change folks's perception of the of the value of the emergency department and the the timeliness of needing to go into the ER. And I, I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. I, I I think that I'm always trying to consider what the long-term consequences of this would be, how this changes our practice, but also how this changes patients' perspectives of the emergency department. And any thoughts on that? Well, the one thing that I think would be fantastic is that I think the public sees emergency physicians now with you know, basically as heroes. Um, and I think our, our colleagues are probably respecting us more than they have ever before. I think once we're done with all this, um, we're going to be treated better. We're going to be listened to more. Uh, I think we'll have more say in what happens in healthcare in general. I think people will look up to us. Um, I think there'll be a lot of benefit actually to emergency medicine in general after this this crisis is done. You know, we, we kind of should be asking ourselves, you know, how will we want to feel when we look back on this period in a few years? And I think we're going to look back on it with pride that we did our best. Um, you know, it's kind of like if you think of when you high-fived everyone in the room after a really great save in the ED and you kind of multiply that by like a thousand, because, you know, I think that's the way we're going to feel at the end of this. We, you know, by the time we're done with this, we'll have achieved so much. Uh, like so much that we should be proud of. And, you know, I think that the public will have kind of a newfound respect for us. You know, it's, it's kind of like, we're going to be like the war heroes after this is done. <laughs> I, you know, I think to your point, I, th- I think, you know, resilience is something I've, I've really been inspired by seeing, you know, you mentioned how exhausting it can be to be in PPE for an entire eight or 10 or 12 hour shift for a lot of our nurses are 12s. And, um, and, and just how, in the setting of a disaster, you know, these hurricanes, tornadoes, it, that it, it's relatively instantaneous or maybe at most over the course of a couple of days. And then you move into a mentality of rebuild and recover and mitigate. And this is just such a prolonged and at times it feels indeterminate uh disaster. And that, that requires kind of a, a level of resilience that, that, I, you know, it inspires me when I see it on shift. And I'm sure it does when you see it on yours as well. How do you foster that among your team? You know, resilience to, to continue to follow evidence-based guidelines, to continue to be mindful of your PPE and, and to, to, to continue to push the envelope in patient care while understanding that this is a trying time for folks. Yeah, I think the conversation that's been going on in foam, um, in particular, has really helped foster that. You know, I think there's on you know on EM cases and other podcasts. I know Salim Rizé did a, a video that was really inspiring. Um, I think people are just talking about how if we remain positive and if we see this as we're all in this together, and if we take all those skills that we've been trained for. And we apply them. And at the same time, if we take care of ourselves and, you know, there's been lots of stuff done in the last few years about wellness and emergency medicine. Um, So luckily, we've kind of trained for all of it already. We've trained in that resilience. Um, There's been some great minds in emergency medicine like Chris Hicks and Scott Weingart and Peter Brindley. There's many others who 
over the last 10 years or so, I think has given us some really great ideas about how to think about our practice in terms of resilience. Um, Sarah Gray's done some amazing work on wellness, as have others. Um, and uh, I think all those people and the whole foam world and people sharing all that information and talking about it, um, I think it's that's kind of what's made us ready for all of this. So I think uh, I have hope that we do have the resilience and that we can get through this. Absolutely. We are the beneficiaries of work by yourself. All the, all the titans that you listed um, have, have laid the foundation, the groundwork for this. And, you know, I think we don't know when the end is, right? And I think that there, that changes your mentality from a goal-oriented, end-oriented, just have to get myself across the finish line to a, I need to be mindful and resilient in this moment. And I think we're all trying to change our mindsets accordingly and, and, and be present in the moment. And, you know, as, as I kind of try and project things out over the next weeks to months, what are your thoughts about strategies for reopening? And I, we may be weeks away from that. We may be months away from that. Hopefully we're not years away from that, but what are your perspectives on whether it's based on modeling or based on your, uh, I'm sure your in interminable meetings about this and planning, uh, what are your thoughts about what the future looks like for this as we try and come out of it on the other side? Well, based on my conversations with some Canadian mathematical modelers, once we flatten this first wave, which at least in Ontario, it seems like we have, and I think in a lot of other jurisdictions we have as well, um, that'll basically buy us time to ramp up the testing and the contact tracing and you know get our PPE supplies and vent supplies and all of that. So that eventually with that, testing and contact tracing, we can then lighten up on the social distancing. And then I think it'll be sort of this dance between letting people go back to work and school on the one hand and testing on the other hand until we have an effective vaccine, which will hopefully come in about 14 or 15 months. So that's their kind of prediction of what'll happen. So it really does depend on public education for the social distancing part. And in Ontario, at least that we're doing pretty well on that. And then hopefully once we start lightening up the social distancing, people go back to work. When they start opening the uh, the borders between countries, um, there won't be any huge waves again because we'll be doing much more testing and contact tracing. Um, and so I do have hope that we will be able to get it under control and that the world economy won't collapse uh, because we will be able to get people back to work and get the economy going again. Um, I think now the important part is just keeping that social distancing thing happening, keeping the education to the public happening so that we can flatten the curve enough that we can then increase uh, our testing capacity. Do you have a timeline or a, a framework for antibody testing? Have you heard rumblings about when that would be available and to what extent? I've heard that there are people working on it, but I don't think, unfortunately, I don't think we have any solid timing. It does seem, based on the few experts that I've spoken to, that an effective vaccine is likely to come in 14 or 15 months. So that that's reassuring. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and then any... Any insight into treatments? I know we have a lot of trials going on, including my shop regarding hydroxychloroquine and convalescent serum. Any preliminary data that you've been either personally aware of or heard of secondhand? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important to understand that all the drugs have only shown theoretical benefit in vitro. I haven't seen a single robust, well-controlled RCT that's convincing for any drug for COVID. Uh, we're kind of all desperately hoping for a drug that works, but 
I think we really do have to go back to the good evidence-based medicine principles before we start using these drugs. And probably the most important thing we do now, I think, is to really push governments and philanthropists and the whole medical community to support our researchers to rapidly push through high quality trials. I think the convalescent serum stuff is kind of interesting. You know, it makes physiologic sense, but again, the studies are observational and tiny. Um, we just need decent studies and we need them fast. The latest Chinese RCT on hydrochloroquine was actually not a bad study. Um, and it showed in terms of patient-oriented outcomes, zero effectiveness with lots of side effects. So I think Really, it's all about supporting our researchers to get their asses in gear, essentially. You know, I think we just need to continue to push responsible medicine and responsible science um, for the sake of our patients and their families and just try and continue to provide, even when it winds up being disappointing, right, uh, doing the right thing and making sure that the appropriate information is communicated. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, especially for the drug parts, because with the drugs, there's all kinds of nasty side effects, which are typically underreported even at the best of times. Uh, and especially in these studies that they're trying to get through quickly, they're going to be underreporting the side effects. Um, things like, you know, awake proning, which we don't have any good evidence for yet. I can't really think of any real harms uh, of proning un unless, you know, there's lines coming out and oxygen coming off faces and that kind of thing. But I think as long as we're careful about that, things like awake proning, um, I think are probably safe to do, may have some benefit. Um, but with the drugs, I think it's especially important to have those studies. Absolutely. Can you walk us through your current shop's approach to non-invasive uh, or heated high flow? I know there's, this is obviously one of the the most prolific topics going through foam right now, whether it's heated high flow and or BiPAP slash CPAP. Can you walk me through what kind of algorithm you guys adhering to? Yeah, so I think most places are doing the graded oxygenation strategies. So starting with a maximum of six liters by nasal prongs, then adding up to 15 liters of a non-rebreather, preferably with a non-rebreather that has a viral filter, like a Tavish or a Hyox. Um, and then if they're not doing well on that, then graduating from there to high flow. At our shop, we're not doing high flow in the emergency department. The main reason being they're having difficulty figuring out how to transport those people safely upstairs once we start high flow in the department because uh, they're not convinced that uh, the aerosolization is safe uh, for transport. Um, so what we're doing is for those patients who we don't think need to be intubated right away and they're maxed out on their non-rebreather and their nasal prongs, we're getting them up to the ICU as fast as possible and they're starting high flow up there. So we don't have much experience with the high flow. Uh, we're not doing any BiPAP or anything like that. For the patients who need to be intubated imminently, we have a great setup at our hospital and I really need to thank our anesthesia colleagues because they've offered to come down to the emergency department for every single intubation that we have. And they've also offered to do the first pass intubation on every single patient we have who needs to be intubated. So the way it works is we, we call a special code and the anesthetist comes down. The anesthetist and the emergency physician have a conversation 
about their plan for the particular patient, who's going to do the first pass. Um, and so it's not always the anesthetist, but most of the time it is. And the emergency doctor is there to help with hemodynamics and any non-airway particular matters um, and peri-intubation issues. And so far it's worked out really well. Everyone's really happy with that. And I do think that that is probably the best for patients. Now, the exception to that setup at our place is the patient who needs kind of a crash intubation now. So the emergency doctors are still doing that. And that makes sense too, because some would argue that emergency doctors are probably better at doing the crash intubation on the really sick patient because anesthetists don't have much experience with that. Um, But the anesthetists certainly have much more experience than us with the patients who need to be intubated, but not this minute. Right. Delayed sequence or, you know, stable prep. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. So so that's how it's working at, at our place. I think the coolest thing that's come out, I think one of the coolest things that I've learned uh, in, in this whole, um, in the whole COVID era was I, I did interview uh, George Kovacs, who's, who's a good friend and an amazing educator and probably Canada's preeminent guru in airway. And even though he's been doing this for years, but particularly for COVID, for pre-oxygenation and reoxygenation, uh, he's a big fan of apneic CPAP, uh, which many people have never heard of or never done before. I certainly myself had never really used it before. Now that I've interviewed him and read about it and practiced it a bit, um, I think it's a great way to go. He has this great video that's really very convincing of apneic CPAP uh, with a cadaver where you actually can see the lungs inflating and deflating uh, without bagging at all. Um, so I think that's a really good option for pre-ox and re-ox in that, in that really sick patient. That's a great trick. Absolutely. And are you using just the CPAP mode on the ventilator connected to a circuit viral filter and then, you know, say probably a BVM at the end? Is that the, your arrangement? Yeah, so BVM, peep valve, um, yes. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't really answer that. <laughs> Perfect. Well, Perfect. Let me say that again. Um, no, it's all right. That's all right. Yeah, so the setup would be you have your BVM at 10 centimeters of peep, and you're running oxygen at 15 liters per minute. You've got your, your VE grip, no bagging, and uh, yeah, and away you go. It's a great trick. No, I, I, I agree. We've started to implement that here, and I, I've noticed much better pre and uh, I haven't had to go through re in my, on my shifts, but I can imagine it would be equally effective for both. Um, thank you. I, I could pick your brain about clinical specifics about this, although it's always a moving target and, uh, folks like yourself, uh, have helped push such great information out in real time about resuscitation of these patients of pre-oxygenation, intubation, ventilation, reoxygenation if needed during intubation attempt, and initial management um, that I think living in this information age, living in this era of real-time dynamic foam is uh, is one of the greatest weapons in our arsenal, I think. And uh, kudos to you and, and folks like yourself who've been putting out that type of that type of evidence and information. Yeah, thanks, man. So I, any final thoughts? I want to be respectful of your time. I, as I said, I could I could pick your brain about clinical and non-clinical stuff related to COVID and just DM in general, but I, I want to make sure that uh, if there's anything in particular that you wanted to get across, uh, I, I want to make sure that we do that. Any, any final thoughts? Well, as I was alluding to a little bit before, I really think the way to get through this is that all of us should really get busy contributing to the cause. 
you know, whether you're an educator or you're a researcher or a policymaker or you have a background in engineering or math, you know, we all, we all need to take the things that we're good at, that we're skilled at, and we need to encourage experts around us to really be working their asses off, you know, and even if you're just an emergency physician without any other talents, you know, volunteer for a COVID committee, you know, to help develop a COVID order set or design and run simulations or come up with a POCUS protocol or PPE prevention strategies, anything. I think the important thing is just to get involved because I think on a personal level, if you do get involved, you'll find that you're much better able to cope with what's going on. You know, sitting at home and reading and watching the news or surfing the web for COVID stuff will just make you more anxious. Especially um, down here, and, Anton. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how much you know about American news, but I I would, I think it's even... <laughs> yeah, I prefer not to pay attention because <laughs> every that time I do, well. I just get angry. That will continue. That will continue to serve you well. Yeah. And, you know, again... I think the other way of sort of getting through this, and you know, it might sound a bit self-congratulatory, but it's really not. I think we should all kind of see ourselves as heroes. You know, I think we should really take pride in our mission here. You know, one of my other mentors, Howard Ovens, he's commented on on this kind of way of thinking as uh, you know, this really is a character-defining moment for us as individuals and as the ED community. Um, and I think if we see it in that way as a character defining moment and that we should be taking pride in our mission, I think that's what's really going to get us through this. And I think we can do it. And again, we'll be high-fiving each other like crazy when this is all done. And uh, I think the lay public, as well as our colleagues and other specialties, will really be seeing us as, as heroes and it's going to elevate emergency medicine to a whole new level. And I'm really looking forward to that day, actually. I am too. I think in many ways, this will bring out the best of us. This is our time to shine. And, you know, when you got into this world of podcasting over a decade ago, you said it was an effort to to bring the community together. And I think that in no greater way is that portrayed and, and demonstrated uh, than your efforts in, in this crisis. And I, I thank you for taking the time for working with me to do my best to try and establish a, a flow state of this interview. Um, and, uh, and I thank you. Uh, I second your thoughts and um, I wish you the best of luck going forward. Yeah. Thanks so much. That was a lot of fun, Nick. Happy to do it anytime. We are on a quest to provide the world with free medical education. Please help us out by rating us on iTunes, following us on social media, and subscribing to our newsletter at emergencymedicalminute.com.